Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to this week's episode of Calcio and Cappuccino, our CBS Sports Study Off specific podcast that we will bring you weekly. Uh, I'm back, Christine Cupo, with my co host, Dre Cordero. Today we have our special guest, Michele Grella, with us. Um, as always, every week will be available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, real quick from the top, if you haven't yet subscribed to Paramount Plus, you can use the SETI A promo code to get your 30 free day promo. Um, this week we'll be in the studio on Sunday, noon to 5.30 p.m. coverage with Matteo Benetti and Dre on the call for Juve Atalanta and full coverage around Lazio Milan on Tuesday. Uh, welcome and how are you guys today, Dre, Michele? Uh, so two quick things right off the top. One, I've grown uh, incredibly fond of your amazingly deadpan introductions. Like yeah, you sound super excited to have Grilla uh, here with us. Uh, and, and two is because this is not a visual medium, I just I, I feel like the need to share uh, that behind Kupo uh, in in the Zoom call that that you know we, we were recording on is a ninety rate, a very modest ninety rated FIFA card with her <laughs> name and picture on it. Uh, it has ninety two pace, ninety seven shot. 99 pass, which is just, I mean, congratulations. A very <laughs> modest 75 dribble. I, I couldn't see what the defending figures were. So if you could fill me in there, but the one that really 80. impressed me, 80, <laughs> very good for somebody who also the 97 shot. Uh, but the one that really stands out is 99 physical. Kupo, you're like five foot two standing on a coffee table and you've got a 99 physical on your uh, facial card. Hey, Dre, Never let him see you coming. Dre, is there a rating for uh, doing crunches on a, on a bunch, on a boxing bag? <laughs> that's got, that's got to be the physical. I think that's where the ninety nine physical. Comes that one's got to bring the average down. Sure. That that should bring the average down. Um, <laughs> listen, the physicality is legitimate. I might not be the biggest in stature, but I definitely uh, do knuckle up. I I've seen the clips. I've seen the clips of the um the the small sided games that our CBS crew plays. So that's the actually the only figure I buy is the ninety nine physical. <laughs> Oh, wow. All right, fine. I have, I have a lot to prove. I, uh, I actually had this, this conversation briefly with uh, Alessandro Nesta over the weekend where I explained to him that I'm a midfielder and that like, you don't want to trust me to defend. And he looked at me and he said, Mil- midfielder, are you more like Pirlo or Gattuso? And without a single pause, I said, uh, I always wanted to play more like Pirlo, but I'm definitely more Gattuso. And then somehow he went missing. I think he was trying to make sure that all silverware were 
like secured somewhere far away from me. I don't know. That is the most impressive uh, deflect and flex that I've heard. In- <laughs> you blasted on the podcast. So you say, oh, by the way, I was having a chat with uh, Alessandro Nesta this week. And he said, so kudos. I mean, I had to bounce back. I'm like, you're like, physicality, <laughs> maybe. You're like, Kate, listen, I'm quick and I'm tough. And that's all I'm relying on as I continue to enter my football or twilight years. Really? With that, um, you guys want to start off with uh, some uh, Supercopa. Uh, Milan, speaking of abysmal defending, um, they probably could have used me more than Tamori. I don't know. <laughs> that card for sure. Uh, Grillo, I'm, I'm, so Matteo and I did uh, the call for this game. We're recording the day uh, after this um, really lopsided uh, 3-0 Inter win over Milan. Um, were you surprised with just how squishy um, Milan's defense has been? And it's not just the the loss to Inter where they were down 2-0 after 20 minutes. Um, good goals by Di Marco and Edin Dzeko. And I'd like to talk a bit more about Dzeko in a moment. Um, but it's not just the, the how they went down in that match. You look at the game against uh, Lecce. They were down 2-0, forced the battle back. They didn't really have an answer for the 1-0 loss to Torino that saw them exit from the Coppa Italia. Um, then they were uh, 2-0 down against Roma, I think, earlier in the month as well. They battled back to take a point there. But like the signs have been there that this Milan team that was you know built its scudetto on its defensive strength last season. In fact, the last two scudetti, 2011 under Max Allegri, um, this last season uh, under Stefano Fioli, they had the league's best defense. And all of a sudden, they can't stop anyone, whether it's Lecce or Inter or anyone else. Yeah, I think uh, the original question was, "Am I surprised?" No, I'm not surprised because the the you know this season has shown us that they've struggled to keep shutouts, even against the smaller teams in the league where they're leading and, they, and they're in control of the game, where they can go on and win the game, probably four or five nil. I mean, they're a fantastic team, good good group of players. They play the right way. We like to say the right way, right? Which is just, well, they play a very modern, open, fast, energetic game. Uh, they take a lot of risks, uh, but but they have let those small teams back into the game. They have conceded a lot of goals. They don't keep a lot of shutouts. Um, when you look at the Supercoppa Italiana, uh, in particular, you, know, you could look at the game in a lot of different through a lot of different lenses and a lot of different you know categories, but the first one, uh, and you guys mentioned on the commentary is, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but it, it is the 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 energy level, the the application to detail, the the um, determination to win the game, and they didn't have that at all. I mean, flat was an understatement. No energy. Took them 30, 40 minutes to get into the game. If you want to say they ever got themselves into the game, which it didn't look like it. A lot of miscontrols from Liao, their best player. Uh, a lot of Houdini performances where guys are just not there. You didn't know if they played or not. Um, so, so no, not surprised. Uh, and then you look at it through, there's, there's that lens, and you look at it through the other lens, which is tactically, right? And I think they've they've lost their way just a little bit in terms of, they're a team that likes to push their back line way up the field. And now they're sort of getting confused with how high do they go? When do they step? You could see the confusion between the, the two center backs. <clears throat> and we talk about the triangle on the show a lot. Tatarushanu, Tomori, Kyar, or Kalulu, whoever you want to put in that triangle. If you would draw a triangle through those three very important pieces of the team, they're all over the place. Tatarushanu not really organizing. Tomori just making Big mistakes on and off the ball. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, later on. And then also just Kiara and Kalulu not helping the cause either. Just kind of 
just very sketchy of when they're stepping, when they're not stepping, and how they're going to play moving forward. That, to me, is a big concern because you can always bring effort the next game. But the tactical stuff and have teams in the city, I figured them out a little bit. That's the thing that that's more worrying for me. See, there's another triangle that I've been thinking about a lot um, lately, and it's a triangle that they had last season, right? And it's the other way. Instead of looking back towards Tato Luciano or Mike Magnano when he's there, it was Frank Kessie who was just such a presence in front of the back line, protecting the, the two center backs, but really the back four in total. And talk about playing the right way. Like, what, what do I prefer? What do I prefer to watch? I'll take a midfield just for my own entertainment and aesthetic value. I'll, I'll take a midfield of Tonali uh, and Ben Nasser who want to have the ball, who are going to break through lines, who are going to make teams play just selfishly. Like, I'd rather watch that than a midfield with uh, like pure destroyer, like a Frank Kessie. Um, but it's not about what I would like or what I want to see. It's about what's effective and what works. And like the reality is, it seems like, or maybe I, I should pose this as a question. Are they getting enough defensive help from the midfield? Is it just on uh, sort of individual mistakes in the back line or just the individual components of that back line? Or is there not that piece, that, that irreplaceable Frank Hesse? It's such For me, that's such a great point that you make there because... Yeah, like you say, Kessie did make that triangle because he sat in a lot. Yeah, he did get it forward on the occasion. Right? He was very good at that. But most of the time, he was right there in the middle, right in front of the two center backs, organizing, breaking up plays, picking up you know, sort of these number 10s on the other teams that come into those spaces that are awkward for the center backs to pick up. They just pass them on to Kessie, who's always in that area, definitely giving them a blanket, more security in front of the two very young, very aggressive center backs. Um now you have Benesset and Tonali who are more number eights to me than number sixes. They're more box-to-box guys who want to fly off the field. I think they've both been very good for the most part. I think Benesset has been – Benesset gets a new deal, right? I'm not sure if he actually officially signed it or not. I think they finally crossed over the uh, crossed it over the line. But it's been a standout. And, uh, and, and Tonali as well in some games, obviously still young and developing. But for sure, Kessie, they're missing – a guy that can sit right in front of the two center backs. And you can see that because a lot of the issues are starting with, I mean, you can go through them all. There's set pieces. There's a lot of stuff going on, but a lot of the issues are the center backs kind of like in these half and half positions. I like to call it no man's land where like, they don't know if they should step or not because the, the, the attacker is like maybe seven, eight, 10 yards in front of them into the midfield, but their identity is, is being aggressive. So they're kind of like in this in-between possession where they're in position where they don't want to leave space behind them, but they don't go and press. And so now they're kind of doing a lot of nothing, the two center backs, and they're getting exposed for pretty, pretty poorly. And it I don't want to like you point out like a few things that are definitely going wrong all in for Milan. Um, I think that first goal, as you said, Grella, um, was literally the result of them sitting too high defensively because they tucked right in behind them and under 10 minutes to score that first goal on Milan. Um, but do you think that also Magnan being out has impacted how everything's working in that back too. Yeah, no question about it. I think we, um, you know we touched it a little bit, but a lot of a lot more of the blame goes for me on the on the center backs and that other triangle that we just mentioned. But for sure, you know having Mike Magnan in the back organizes better, more of a leader. You know, if you make a couple of mistakes, he might save you at the back. That's Ruchano, more of an average goalkeeper. I think you look at some of the goals. Most of the goals that he's let in have not really been on him. They've been really big defensive breakdowns. Um, so, so yeah, that is part of it for sure. Manyan adds a lot of value to the team, but I think if you're looking for a, a, a real issue, I think you, you have to look a little bit higher up there in that midfield defensive, the two center backs, uh, a triangle first. 
Yeah, the, uh, it just seems like they're compounding each other, like from both sides, where it's like you're missing key players in both behind that line and in front of. And so it's like all of your safeties essentially get pulled off. And it's like, okay, you're you're kind of willy-nilly floating in the wind there. Yeah, yeah. the other that's your that's right. the nerd side of me says like adjusts his glasses and says Mike Magnan had the best post shot expected uh, goals uh, of any goalkeeper by far last season uh, and I won't <laughs> go in depth into that and, and I don't want to talk too much about you know players who aren't there but the, the thing that really stood out to me about when you know Frank Kessie in that midfield is he had a massive influence on their defending not just when he was sitting the protecting protecting the back line but he would sometimes be played as a trequartista right and and it was more of like a battering ram up there in that number 10 position, not because he was going to distribute or, you know, play fancy passes or, or, you know, create chances for others. Although he can do some of that, but it was more because you wouldn't allow teams to play out of the back. You had a, you had a uh, wrecking ball, you know, close to the opposition's goal. That was sort of a destructive force. And even though it hasn't, you know, worked out massively yet for Frank Kessie at Barcelona uh, early on when he arrived and he was training with them, I remember Pedri saying that it was like he played with a force field around him and you would just watch players ricochet off him. Like he had this presence everywhere he went. And I think they're missing that. They're missing somebody that that is tough as nails like that in that in that midfield, in my opinion. And Krunish isn't that, um, even though he has a little bit of reputation for it. Uh, Tonali is probably the closest thing to it, but not not quite. He's more box-to-box. Uh, uh, box. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that, that they're, they're missing someone like that. I mean, they have a lot of great pieces. They have a good team. I'm sure that they'll figure things out and look at video. That's the most beautiful thing about football about life in general is that you can look at the mistakes the mistakes teach you a lot so they'll i think they'll look at those mistakes they'll get better for it organize better for it uh and, and be able to kick on but you know they've been so successful all last season i think i don't know the number of games they went on to unbeaten to win the Serie A. oh sometimes that can be a bad thing because these little sloppy defensive errors or sloppy uh, positioning details and the tactics that, you know, they can go unseen because you're celebrating every week, week in and week out that how great you are. And you don't see these blaring mistakes, but I think starting from that Chelsea game, the Chelsea matchup in the champions league where Milan were just nowhere near and made a lot of, a lot of defensive mistakes since then, it's been very shaky at the back. I think. The other side of this, um, or the other aspect of the Supercopa that really stood out to me is that we had sort of a battle of the Greybeards, right? It was uh, Olivier Giroud on one side, uh, who was ageless, and the equally ageless Edin Dzeko uh, on the other. And if one of those guys scored, they were, whichever one was going to become the oldest goal scorer in the history of the Supercopa. And so Dzeko did. He scored the 2-0, the which was a ridiculous goal, by the way. Bastoni gets credit for the assist, but it's one of those, like, paper assists where really Dzeko did all the work. Um who was it? Was it Calabria that he sent to the corner store or, or Tomorrow? I forget. Oh, or Kier. I forget. Tonali. It was Tonali that he beats uh, inside of the area. Um, so he becomes the oldest goal scorer in Supercopa history uh, at 36 years old. Uh, he become, he turns 37 in March. So it's 36 years, 307 days. Uh, eclipses Cristiano Ronaldo scored against Napoli in 2021 at, uh, you know, past the age of 35. And so, you know, the Swan of Sarajevo, uh, as as they came to call Edin Dzeko in Italy, is now part of sort of a long line of really good old men gold school goal scorers in the history of Serie A. And I, I don't say that in a disparaging way. Like I am in awe. In fact, uh, a few years back, I asked Bobo Vieri about this. Like, why is it that, you know, Totti could play until he's 40 years old, that Luca Toni can win a Capo Canonieri and, you know, at, at age 37, uh, a title that, that he shared that year with Mauro Icardi, who was 16 years younger than him. They're like, what is it about Italian football? What is it about Serie A where these guys could shine into that advanced age? And so I guess my question or my curiosity is for you guys, what is, who is your favorite 
Serie A old man of all time. You know, Fabio Corlirella is still playing, and I think he's uh, 39 now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so who is the old guy in Serie A that was banging in goals that you really just love to watch? You want to go first, Carlo? <laughs> go ahead, Christina. No, go ahead. After you, sir. I'd give you mine if you guys want, if you guys prefer that. I start. I'm ready, but I just am interested to see what Grella says first. Go on, Grella. Roberto Baggio is my idol as a, as a, um, my whole life. You know, when I saw him miss the penalty in 94 at Cyclone, I really fell in love with football and, and, uh, felt bad for him. And I, you know, that tournament, he was fantastic and really gave uh, Italian Americans a lot of hope in, in, the, in the tournament. So I started following him from then. And, uh, he was a guy that played, I think, till 37, but at Brescia, yeah. Later on, which Brescia, obviously not one of the not one of the better teams in Serie A, but he had ended up having forty five goals and ninety five appearances. I mean, I think that's that's, that's insane. pretty incredible. And 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 the thing I loved about most about him was that you know he made it look easy. The same reason why I liked watching Dolti, same reason why I liked watching um, Alessandro Del Piero. All these guys, they just big soccer IQs made the game look easy. Uh, Jeco, although in his prime, a big powerful center forward. You can see now how good and how smart a player he is, his movements, his technique, his touch, some of his layoffs. I mean, he's just a level above in, in where he's at in, in his mind. I feel like it's interesting because Jekko definitely is having his own little renaissance. He looks so good. Like he just, whatever's going right for him is going right. But I think if you look at someone like Jekko now, right, in present day modern technology, and we'll call this built different FC of these elder statesmen. Like that are, right? Like Baggio didn't have the benefit of all the tech and things that we track nowadays in comparison to um, say now where we have data for every single thing, every breath that these players take. So I feel like it's a little bit of a, a bigger gap between um, abilities and otherwise back then. Cause you, can you imagine like doing this on like X games mode, like Baggio had to versus now where it's like your nutrition needs to come up a little bit. And, and it's a lot easier to, quantify and qualify everything that's going on with individual players. Um, not to mention like that celebration that Jekko had, like that man definitely does yoga. The hip openers that he had there were 10 out of 10. Um, people should study him. But uh, my... Um, he's ridiculously my agile on. for a big guy, right? Because it's not, it's not just his age. He's also like a massive... Dude. Right. He's not uh, like a dainty. Then again, I kind of love football for that because sometimes the biggest dudes are the most graceful, light on their feet. Um, and then the tinier people are just like wrecking balls. <laughs> we're getting carried away on Jekko. I mean, I wouldn't say he's like mobile and, and can move. And, you know, <laughs> you know. Okay. But Grella, if you're placing him between like walking with a cane or like pirouetting through the midfield, where are we falling on this range? Uh, he's smooth. Like, he's smooth for an older guy, you know? I mean, and it's important to know, like he kind of just, everyone just kind of wrote him off this year because of how old he is. And he scored 17 goals last season in all competitions. I think he just got ran into the ground. He was just exhausted last season. Like it was middle of the season when they, um, when they played Liverpool or wherever they played. And they, he was just, they had that tough February schedule or January, whatever it was mid season. And they, and he was just dead, uh, dead and tired. So now you see him with some fresh legs and I mean, he can still he can still play. Uh, Listen, I'm, I didn't say I didn't say he was quick. I didn't say he was fast. I said he was agile, <laughs> and he, he put Tonali on a t-shirt uh, on that two 0 goal. It was Tonali uh, put himself on a t-shirt there. To be quite honest with you, and look look, I was not a fan of Tonali, not because he's not a good player, just because people had him so high, like so high. Like I I heard hearing quotes that he, he could be in 
one of the best players that's ever played for Milan or be in the Oh, there's been tons of Tonali propaganda that are like one of the greatest regista in the game. And And so that's (laughs) I wasn't a fan. But then watching him play at the end of last season, I did become a fan. And I've come out and been like, all right, maybe I got Tonali wrong. But watching that defending, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how else to explain it. I mean, if I go watch my son play on the weekend and he defends like that, I would be surprised. And But you talk about Supercoppa Italiana, you talk about top player, national team player for a top country, defending like that, it's only two things. It's either very naive or very lazy because the only place you can keep him there, you have to push him to the outside. I mean, I'm not a defender, but everybody knows that. Let him shoot from that, from that difficult angle. And even if he does cut inside, you have to make it difficult for him. He can't just cut you and you just do a drive-by. That's that's uh, not, a, not at that level. I, you, you can't, that can't happen. This is, uh, we're going to play this uh, audio, I think, on our next um, uh, <laughs> TV segment. And then we'll just like edit in clips of you defending uh, with the New York Red Bulls and uh, at Leeds United. Just all those, all, the, all that pressing and all that uh, getting goal set of defenders that you did in your in your career. But Kupo, who's your, uh, who's your draft pick for the... So uh, mine yeah. is uh, pretty predictable for me. I'm going with uh, Olivier Giroud because I feel like despite uh, the last match, because that was definitely not an exemplary one, um, he still is performing at a high level. The man pulls in these like amazing aerial goals. Um, He's still doing things like he's 25 mentally. So that's nice. But um, the physicality and overall um, just impressiveness still that continues. And he's what, 30, see same as Jekko? Yeah, he's 36. Yeah. 36 is uh, like 110 days or something like that. Yeah, I think for, for modern ball, that's that's definitely my pick. He's still got it. Um, so, uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. He hasn't really, knock on wood, been plagued by injuries like someone, say, like a Zlatan, who equally impressive, just not nearly as um, together. I feel like somehow you start to get more fragile at some point, and once you hit that sort of precipice, there's no turning back. So I love that he said that he's still playing like he's 25 because my uh, pick for my favorite uh, City A old man um, is a guy who didn't even break into City A until he was 25 years old. And that is Udinese legend Toto Di Natale. Uh, when he was 25, he made a City A debut for Empoli. He did not become a volume goal. He, one of the greatest, like a generationally good goal, uh, goal scorer in City A. And he did not become a volume goal scorer really of any kind until he was already into his 30s, right? So like before turning 30, he had one season with 17 goals at Udinese. Actually, that was that was the year he turned 30. He scored 17 goals, which was a career high for him. After that, he had seasons at 32, he scored 29 at 33, 28, back-to-back seasons of 23 and 23 at 34 and 35. So for, for a guy who had n- never scored more than 17 goals until he turned 30 years old to then compete for scoring titles, uh, compete for the Capo Canonieri on a season by season basis on a team like Udinese that, you know, could, you know, challenge and, and was finishing back in his days uh, toward the top of the, not, not challenging for the Scudetto, but challenging for Champions League places. Uh, Di Natale was just like appointment viewing for me and the way that he did it, right? Because he, he's not like Giroud or Dzeko or, you know, these big guys. Uh, he, he's diminutive, a little bit stocky, uh, shifty, would just score these beautifully aesthetic goals, you know, weaving through players. Uh, and again, for, for a team like Udinese, uh, Toto Di Natale was just the guy who made you want to watch that club every single weekend. This That's is a guy. solid pick. <laughs> I like the late bloomers are always going to be. I'm trying to think of who else had like a late start that kind of. I'm coming up empty though. Go ahead, girl. 
a good, a, a really good point here is like where soccer's going now. So I remember distinctly from the beginning of my career, I used to come back to preseason 10 pounds heavy, five pounds heavy, <laughs> and then go to preseason and get fit. You know, in a month, six weeks time, I'd get fit. That towards the end of my career, you had these young kids coming in totally like you come in totally fit and then you run and get to a new level of fitness that I've never even I've never been in. And I don't I don't want to be in. And in the locker room before training, you're doing hamstring stretches, you're doing vertical jumps, you're doing how much can you leg press, how much can you. And I think the way the modern game is going, the guys like this would be overlooked because he's not going to jump the highest. He's not going to be the fastest. He's not going to, there is an element of football that can't be calculated through statistics that can't be calculated through physical uh, uh, exercises or tests. And I sometimes laugh when I see, you know, where these teams are going now in the future with all these lasers set up and where you jump and, and, uh, and, and how you land and, and all these metrics that for me, they're important to have, but, you have to look at the football player. And this guy was a guy that you could look at and say, wow, there's not a lot to measure, but he's got something really, really special about him. And in Italy, more than anywhere else, I think these players pop up. Like like the Totis, the Pieros, Di Natales. I mean, uh, um, who's the little guy I was thinking about? Fabrizio um, Micoli. I mean, Micoli was like five foot three. Okay. Uh, you think about Jovinko. All these guys where you can't measure them physically, you can't measure them in the modern metrics, right? And all this XG and all this nonsense that, that we go through now. These are guys that you give them a football and then you can see right away. If you understand the game of football, you can see right away that these guys are the best. I'm a big fan of the uh, the Iniesta, the, the Natale types, the guys who, when you come across them, they look more like they might be your accountant than a professional footballer. And you watch them play, and it's just absolute stardust football. It's just one of my favorite things about this sport in itself. In fact, my my favorite year of the Ballon d'Or is watching three guys who were five foot seven finish on the podium. Right, you had Xavi, Iniesta, uh, and uh, Messi uh, for second and third for the Ballon d'Or. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I think we should leave the old man talk at that. <laughs> Moving on from old man talk, uh, do you guys want to hit on upcoming Juventus-Atalanta match? Uh, today we had Atalanta absolutely decimate Spezia um, in the Coppa Italia. Uh, Lookman hitting himself a brace, um, among others, showing out, which is not particularly surprising. Juve coming off of that absolutely shambolic match 
over the weekend against Napoli, which was not particularly surprising, although I think most of us said that we thought it was going to be a relatively low scoring draw of a match and they absolutely got murdered probably twice. It was the definition of like, please stop hitting them. They're already dead. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we have Atalanta Juve um, popping up on Sunday at 2.45. They are playing Juve at home. Um, Gasparini seems to be back to Pete Gasparini. Um, I don't know, Grella, what do you see happening uh, or what do you expect to see out of this Atalanta-Juve match? Do you think Juve are going to bounce back after that embarrassment or do you think this is just going to be um, them treading water as they're still sitting in, in third, at least presently? Yeah, with uh, well, I'll start with Atalanta. With Atalanta, mm-hmm. like last season, they, they, they played an unbelievable transition, risky game, like the Atalanta that we've, we all love, like we all said coming into the last season, not this season, we all said, I mean, this team plays the best, one of the best football in, in Europe as well. Like I think it was last season that they played to Manchester United and barely got knocked out, but they played fantastic football. They create a ton of chances, exciting to watch, but you know, leaky defense and, and susceptible to the counterattack. This season they came in, they were not in European competition. We didn't have them in our top four and they surprised us. They came out undefeated for a long time. And they shored up the defense. They played more solid defensively and sort of played more methodically. And they were getting results. And now it seems with this 8-2 result, they've gone back to just being rock and roll Atalanta, where they're kind of, you know, taking the restrictions off and letting them go after it again. So what what we're going to see, which Atalanta we're going to see, we're going to see the methodical one that wants to get a point or that wants to play in a difficult game with Juventus, or we're going to see the one that flies flies open and plays a, a very open, aggressive, offensive, uh, offensive football. So that will be interesting to see. And on Juventus end, um, I think Allegri has a, a, uh, another problem on his hands. It may, may be a good problem, maybe a bad problem, but where do you put Federico Chiesa as the best player in the team? Where do you put at wing back? He got totally exposed uh, in the last game with Napoli. Mm-hmm. On multiple, on multiple, multiple occasions, the first two goals, you could argue, were Chiesa's fault or Chiesa was not in the right place at the right time. He's clearly not a wing back. I mean, anyone who understands the game knows that. So where do you put your best player on your team? You can't play him as a wing back. Because, so, so do you change formation now? Do you change identity again? What, what is Juventus going to do? So I think Juventus has the bigger questions to be answered coming going into this game. And I and Atalanta are, you know, you score eight goals. Obviously, you feel like every shot you take, every every azione that you create is going to be in the back of the net. But uh, so they have confidence. So I, I like Atalanta's chances in this game. They scored 13 goals in five days. I think we have a, a sense of the <laughs> version of Atalanta we're going to see, right? Because they put eight, two past uh, Salernitana. Uh, and then in the Copa, they put five more past Spezia in the span of a week. Um, you raise a really interesting point, though, because I remember when Allegri came back, uh, to Juventus, like does Allegri have a Chiesa problem? And that is that Chiesa really struggled as Allegri was playing him in a variety of positions that weren't what Chiesa believes or what we've seen to be Chiesa's best position, right? So he was being played as a second striker, as a trequartista, now occasionally as a wingback. And it would seem that like, okay, if he's one of the first names on the team sheet when he's available, you would sort of put a system in place that gets the most out of your would-be you know, best player. I want to be cautious to not be like too reactionary because right before they gave up five goals against Napoli, uh, Juve had gone on an eight game win streak uh, in Serie A and had kept eight clean sheets. So it was almost like 
if they spread those five goals across those eight games, no one would bat an eye, but they were so clearly demolished by Napoli, who are the class of Serie A, that I think it's more sort of eyebrow, uh, Ancelotti eyebrow raising, um, given that result. I, I would be more inclined to think that just like Atalanta season last year was a blip, that Juve's performance against Napoli was also sort of a blip, sort of an accident, and that that's not really indicative of where Juve are defensively going forward. I think my, the, the issues with Juve would be more along the lines of what to do with Chiesa, you know, how to sort out that attack, how to get, you know, the, the best out of Vlahovic when he's, you know, fit and healthy and available to play again. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much about Juventus defensively with Max Allegri as coach going forward. I feel like if it is a blip for Juve, um, it was a hell of a blip. Let's be honest, right? Because it wasn't just Chiesa not necessarily being an optimal Chiesa playing positions, but it was also errors by Bremer, um, by Danilo, um, just a lot of really messy, like what's happening back there communication wise and other like sliding out of place, disconnect between like midfields and then like those top two. So Angel Angel Di Maria, even when he got the ball um, the first time when he was trying, it's like, okay, it just looked out of sorts when it fell to his feet. So it was a big question for me as to like, what exactly is transpiring here? Um, it didn't look like the team that played those prior eight matches that went unbeaten. Um, so yeah, could be a blip, could be something else. That's more of a symptom of, of something when you come against a squad like Anopoly, who are undeniably top of the top right now, um, really impressive. But if I were Atalanta and Gasparini, I'd be using that as a bit of a blueprint in like, hey, how are we going to attack this Juve side and try to dismantle them the same way? So I, not, I think, think not that this so, means anything, uh, Grella, but I'd love to get your reaction to this because I was looking at the, uh, again, doesn't mean anything because it's just the probable lineups um, as as predicted by Gazzetta for for Juve Atalanta coming up this weekend. Um, they have Chiesa outside of the starting 11. They, they have uh, Allegri sticking to a, 3-5-2, Di Maria in support of Milik, Kostic, and McKenney as the wingbacks. And again, Weston McKenney as a wingback, like, sure, whatever. I mean, he's going to run a lot. Um, <laughs> that's not where you're going to get the, the best out of him. And right. on the bench, certainly not where you're going to get the best out of Federico Chiesa. Oh, that's that's the point I was trying to make is is now, yes, what, what, what do you do if you're Allegri? You know, I, I think you have to stick to what you know. You have to, you have to play defensively because at the moment, that's what they have. That's what preseason is so important because you – not only you spend time together, you work together physically and, and mentally to, to create the group, but you also work on, on what you're going to look like. What is your football going to look like? So obviously in the beginning of the season, they I'm sure they had aspirations to play better football. But in the end, uh, the way they started, they had to, Allegri had to go from what he knows and he, and he wanted to play defensively. And then again, he, he plays Chiesa as a wingback. Uh, Napoli run riot, 5-1. And now he's sort of at that at that predicament again. The last time he did something like this, where he went away from his nature of defending Catanaccio, whatever you want to call it, terrible brand of football, make no mistake, mm -hmm. was when we were in Italy and they played against Inter. And they were also had a chance to pull back Inter from the Scudetto race and really put themselves in it. They, we were in Torino, Juventus was home, and he played Morata, who was a striker. Second striker at best is the deepest he's going to go. Played him as a left midfielder. Morata in the game uh, was in his own box defending and creates the penalty. So he's gotten burned from it before where he's gone away a little bit from his identity and put an attacking player in a spot to maybe not to maybe hurt the team. And I think with Chiesa as a wingback, I think there are other wingbacks that are better than Chiesa if you're talking about pure wingbacks that are going to play more defensive football. So he 
he's at a he has at a place now where he has a difficulty because he doesn't know where exactly where he's going to play Chiesa. And of course, Chiesa wants to play. He's the, one of the best in Italy. Yeah. Shades so, of uh, Jose Mourinho playing uh, Samuel Letour wing back. Yeah, wing back. It, it, I mean, it, it's crazy. But also now, how are you going to manage? I mean, I, I think he's a very good locker room guy. From what I can see from the outside, seems like a great guy. Seems like everyone loves him. But also, he's one of the best players. He has aspirations to do big things with Italy, big things with Juventus. He's not a player that can stay on the bench for long. You can only use, oh, well, we're working him back in. You can only use that for so long. Then he has to play. So, and like you said, you made a great point, Dre, is even before he was injured, people forget. People say, oh, well, Chiesa has been out. Before he was injured, Allegri tried him as a forward. He tried him sort of as like a withdrawn striker. And he was terrible. He looked lost. I mean, I don't know the numbers, but he turned the ball over a lot. And, yeah. he, and he it's amazing off. to like neutralize your one of your best players like that. Uh, and I don't know. Sometimes you kind of just want to scream at it like you're like, how do we keep letting you get away with this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of talk about like the the youngsters um, who are getting playing time to Allegri's credit this year. Um, the Miretis, the Sules, um, Illing Jr., guys from the the next gen U23 team that have come up into the first team. But there's a really, really talented teenager on the Atalanta side that is, I think, the most interest one of the most interesting parts of this matchup. And what like if we did a player to watch segment, for me it would be Rasmus Hoyland, who's in his first season in Syria, uh, is coming up against one of the you know toughest tests, going up against Juve's defenses, one of the biggest things you could face as a as a young Serie A player. And this kid is on an absolute tear at the moment. He's on a he's picked up a goal today against Spezia. Scored in four straight games today uh, against Spezia as well. But before that, uh, in the 8-2 against Salernitana, where everyone scored, he did as well. Uh, actually, he scored back-to-back against Spezia, Bologna, Atalanta, and Serie A, and then Spezia again today. At 19, uh, for a guy who had never scored more than, I think, like six goals at Sturmgratz in the Austrian uh, Bundesliga. But when he signed all of the sort of youth European youth football experts, all the people who, you know, scour the next uh, football manager, uh, Wizkid, were all raving about Rasmus Hoyland. And I think now we can see why uh, he is lighting it up. And, and you know, on a, on a team that's got some good forwards um, with Luis Muriel uh, still there with uh, Zapata there as well, Hoyland is making himself sort of indispensable at the moment. And to be 19 and scoring four straight games in the Italian top flight, to me, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, I no, he- like- Go ahead. Go ahead, Christine. I was going to say, I feel like the way that other teams utilize their youth like that, which is like the proper way, is the inversion of what we see happen with Juve when we finally get to see the kids. It's like they get the minutes when things are going terribly wrong, which I feel like does them a huge disservice because they are really talented, right? I love Miretti. I love Sule. Um, I include like Fagioli in that like younger bracket of players. Um, and I feel like they don't get to benefit as much as somebody like, say, like a Holland or um, otherwise, where, I mean, I wish. Like Gasparini, I feel like, is is a great one to come up under when you get Pete Gasparini, but I am part of the pro Gasparini fan club. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a quick mention, like with Juventus, it's it's it was strange how Miretti and, and Fagioli uh, help them during a very difficult time to, 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 to give them a little spark, a little youth, a little know what it means to wear the Juventus shirt. And then in the biggest game of the season against Napoli, he went away from all the youngsters immediately. So that was a little bit disappointing from Allegri. Obviously, they didn't play well. Uh, but to go back on Hoyland, um, he gives the team what Muriel and Zapata have not given the team 
in quite some time now, and that is uh, energy, energy, running, uh, 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 youth. When you watch Muriel and Zapata, two very talented players. I had Zapata in the beginning of the season scoring, I don't know, over 15, 20 goals. I really like his skill set. But these guys, when they go on the field, they're almost, you almost feel like they're in second gear a lot of the time. Uh, and it's been that way for some time. And, and it's easy to get comfortable. I think sometimes you do need to change a scenery or change a coach or change something to light the spark again. But those two have been subpar now for, for quite some time. And on Hoyland is this introduction of just color and pace and power and good feet. And now he's scoring. So uh, good on Gasparini for giving him the chance. But I think those two, uh, Muriel and Zapata, have opened up the door big time for, for Hoyland because they just haven't been really getting it done. Speaking really? of those yeah, old guys, they're only 12 years older than Hoyland. They're both only 12. Years that yeah. seems like a lot, though, in football. <laughs> years, you know, Grilla, uh, you brought up something interesting, and I feel like you're probably the best person on this team to ask this question of. But um, the way that the Juve youth have gotten the opportunity to sort of be contributors and then kind of yank that out back from under them from a pro player perspective or a former player perspective, what does that actually do to you psychologically? Like, how do you generally cope with that feeling like, wait, I feel like I'm getting the opportunities and suddenly I'm now, I have this diminished presence where I don't necessarily have the same value in these big matches. I, uh, I played for Leeds United against a team called Kettering Town. Right. And it became this like you know, even the locker room. Uh, a lot of us were joking around all oh, playing Kenner in town. They were not, I don't even know if they were considered a professional team at the time. It was FA Cup, if I'm not mistaken. And we go over to Kenner in town and play them. And we're thinking, oh, we're going to run them over. Easy game. We tie zero zero. And so, all right. In the FA Cup tradition is you or the rules are you you tie, you go back to the other team. So now we're playing at Ellen Road, which is Leeds United. Uh, Home stadium, the place is rocking. They they got no shot, right? Well, full-time happens and it's zero zero again. And can't beat them. I come on, I score two goals and an assist in overtime. We go on. It was a big win because not only because we couldn't beat them, but because the winner got man united in Old Trafford. All right. I come on, two goals, assist, young kid in the team, 20 years old. In the papers, everyone would always say, Oh, well, this kid's gonna be awesome for the future, awesome for the future. I'm trying to get things going. I finally get it going. I'll never forget right after the game, the assistant manager came over and said, hey, bud, you, we got a reserve game tomorrow for you to play in. And it was nothing more uh, of a suck out in terms of my, my spirit and my confidence. And after just scoring two goals and getting this little springboard, now next week we're going to play Man United away from home. And by the way, they're bitter rivals. And everyone, that was kind of like my coming out party. Everyone knew who I was from that point. And then going the next day to play in the reserve game, nobody watching. Two cows and 10 people <laughs> in, the cold, in the cold, freezing, terrible locker room, no pre-match meal, like terrible conditions. And as a, as a football player, especially a young football player, you need consistency. You need a run of games, not four games, not five. You need 10 games. You need the coach to actually push you and give you every opportunity to do well. And if you don't get that, you're going to constantly have these little rots and you're constantly going to be picking up from where you left off. So it's difficult for these young players mentally, physically to continue. Nothing worse than, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but after the game, after a big game, when you see the substitutes running after the game. Yeah. yeah. Those, those are people. I know you say, oh, they're professionals. They have to prepare. But emotionally, you prepare the game. 
You could have family in the stands ready to watch you play. You don't play. And then you go run after the game while the stadium's empty. It's very sad. It's very depressing. So you have to, you have to maintain mentally these things. And these are the side that maybe a lot of people don't see with professional yeah. football. There's a big emotional, physical side that when you don't play the youngsters, when you go to them and then don't go to them for a few months or a few weeks, you, you're killing them a little bit, you know? That, no, that lends definitely a, a certain perspective that I feel like people forget because they want to lean so heavily into the, but that's your job. Yeah, there's still a human aspect to every single player. Um, so that, aren't people. Uh, no, I'm kidding, go ahead. <laughs> I think uh, with that, I mean, weird segue, but um, <laughs> I'm like, gee, where to go from here? That was, no. Um, we do have um, some players, at least more recently, that have disappeared in big games. And so we, we would like to introduce, without further ado, we have the Houdini of the week um, with Grella. So who do you think went most missing um, of the recent matches? Harry Houdini for me this week <laughs> is without a doubt. And I, and I hate that he is Harry Houdini for this week is Tamori. Uh, we were all super high on, we all love him. I think he brings unbelievable energy and athleticism and just really fun player to watch. Um, but he's been a little bit exposed in the last few weeks. I think it started at Chelsea and I wrote down a few of his, I watched a few of his plays before this um, before this meeting, but the one that really stares out uh, stands out to me is the one with Lautaro Martinez. It's just a simple long ball, and he's actually becomes Harry Houdini in the play because he never touches the football or he <laughs> never touches Lautaro Martinez the entire time, and it is the easiest goal. It's almost looks like a goal from when you watch little kids play when the ball bounces over your head. Uh, and it's not his level. So hopefully it's just something that just happened. But he, for me, has been letting down uh, the back line for sure because he's a guy they depended upon. He's a major reason why they won the Scudetto last season. Yeah. He was awesome. Uh, but now the last few weeks, I mean, you see some of his defending on set pieces. You see some of his defending high up where he's not really doing anything. Is he trusting his speed too much? I, I, I don't know. But when you watch him, it's not good. And then he doesn't get a call to the to the World Cup to go with England. Maybe there he's struggling with some confidence. I I don't know. But he's unfortunately he is Harry Houdini this week. Uh, again, not a visual medium, so I just want to let anyone listening know that uh, Mike Grella is wearing a paperboy hat that looks like it's from the 1920s, <laughs> which is absolutely perfect because really Houdini that that's the reference we're using. We're using. <laughs> A magician <laughs> who died in the mid 1920s. Like, do, we, do young people know who Harry Houdini is? I mean, I don't know. I'm a millennial, and I had to ask if Houdini was just a magician in our in our prep call, and so we this, realized that he's actually a famous. I think Rella should don the paperboy cap every time that, even though people can't see him at the moment, every time he does. A, <laughs> he, he, when uh, we get to uh, the visual medium for this podcast, our next evolution as a pod, yeah. um, we'll have him have him on. I mean, he does. He looks nice in his little gray cable knit sweater and his newsboy cap. Everybody, just rest assured, he is <laughs> doing uh, calcio sartorialism um, in the pod. Yeah, um, I got, got clothes on. That's for sure. <laughs> You mentioned like Grella's showing up again shirtless in the pod. No, uh, no HR violations this week, guys. We're we're good. Yeah. Um, we want to hit on uh Salernitana's little Abraham Simpson in and out cap of firing, hiring, rehiring, whatever just happened after that Atalanta wash. 
Yeah, go ahead. Because I, I, um, I this, this reminds me of one of my other sort of pseudo things. For anyone about. that's missed out on this small saga, and I don't know that this has ever happened before, but uh, poor Nicola got sacked after that 8-2 loss to Atalanta by President Danilo Iarolino. Um, and they held talks very quickly with Rafa Benitez, Roberto Avers, Diversa, uh, Leonardo Semplici. Um, the closest was maybe, I heard, uh, Diversa, but like no agreements made. And before that could even happen, mind you, this is in a 48-hour span, um, Iarolino went back to talk to the team about a possible um, reconciliation um, with Nicola. Um, and he had explained that, that he never lost the dressing room, but there were a significant number of disagreements, uh, between the president and January targets, uh, in terms of what Nicola wanted the sporting director. This is like a full telenovela, uh, Calcio edition, uh, sporting director, Morgan DeSantis decided that he would play intermediary between both the coach and the president. And somehow Nicola is back for the Derby della Campania, uh, against Napoli on Saturday. Saturday. So that brings everybody up to speed. Um, I don't know. We've got everything, right? High drama, um, a hell of a sacking and reunion in 48 hours or less. This is a very uh, passionate, fiery Serie A. So uh, what do you make of it, gentlemen? Yeah, pardon the um, alliteration, but there is no coaching carousel like a Calcio coaching carousel. Uh, There's something about (laughs) this league uh, and this country that just, you know, they don't they don't even properly fire managers and kind of keep them on the payroll on, on the very likely chance they need to bring them back. You don't usually expect them to bring them back 48 hours later, as was the case here. But uh, I instantly thought about one of the wildest uh, Serie A teams and Serie A seasons that I've ever experienced in, in my years covering this league. And that was uh, under the uh, mercurial Maurizio Zamparini, uh, former president of Palermo, the 2015-2016 Palermo team that made in a single season, within one season, nine managerial changes involving seven different managers, one of which was never even officially manager of Palermo. And so I don't know if you remember this, Grella, but the season starts with Beppe Iacchini as manager of Palermo. He goes through the first 12 rounds, gets sacked, gets kept on the payroll as they do, replaced by Davide Ballardini, who lasts about seven games until November. He gets sacked. They decide they want to hire former Boca great uh, Guillermo Barros Queloto, the Argentine manager. Uh, He agrees to it. Only problem is he doesn't have the required UEFA coaching license uh, to manage in the Italian Serie A. So they hire Fabio Viviani, who was working in the club's analytics department. Uh, He gets trounced by Genoa 4-0 in his first game. So they essentially shove him aside, bring in Giovanni Bossi, he uh, gets sacked after one game as well. Giovanni Tedesco steps in to replace him. That doesn't go well. So Bolsi gets rehired. Tedesco, who was just the manager of the previous game, gets demoted to assistant. At that point, Guillermo Barros Queloto decides he's giving up. He sees the uh, he sees what's happening at Palermo. He no longer wants anything to do with a move to Italy. Uh, he was never officially part of the, the coaching carousel, but was one of the seven mentioned. So they decide to just bring back Pepe Iacchini, who they started the season with anyway and fired after 12 rounds. Yakini gets into a really public spat, embarrassing with uh, Mauricio Zamparini, the president. So he resigns. He's the only one that season who wasn't fired, but instead resigns. They bring in Walter Novellino, who's a very known commodity and had been managing in Serie A for years. Uh, he lasts four games before he's fired. And they go back to their second repeat of the season, Davide Ballardini, who sees out the final six games of the season. And somehow, somehow, despite all of that chaos, Palermo managed to avoid relegation that year. 
they finished, they didn't even finish like one place above the bo- uh, bottom three. They finished 16th, one point above the relegation zone uh, because Udinese, Carpi, Frosinone, and Verona somehow managed to be worse than a team that had nine managerial changes and seven different coaches. Jesus. <laughs> it's insanity. It's insanity. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's part of the reason why, you know, you don't see a lot of, uh, sometimes new ideas, you know, when regarding the, the football, the managers, the players, because you have this sort of carousel It happens with the players. It happens with the, with the coaches, uh, like you, like you just went through with the, with the owners. So it's sort of like a, um, you know, like a private club in, in, in a way you've got to be in that, in that circle uh, to, to, to sort of be involved. But uh, it, I think that's what makes it special, makes it good, but it also is uh, what, what at times can make it a little bit uh, traditional and, and uh, stale, you know? For sure. I mean, this also with Salernitana, they're currently sitting in 16th with only 18 points. Um, so a little bit in the danger zone or heading that way. And they're going to be clashing with Napoli this weekend. So I don't know. Nicola better have learned some Houdini magic and not of the disappearing variety, I think, because uh, that and aside from poor Memo, who has inherited this Salernitana side that he's now forced to carry on his back, I feel like he's going to both have the most saves of his lifetime and also probably concede um, the most goals just given volume, especially with the stronger sides just ripping shots on him, which has got to be demoralizing. Um, they need to definitely give him some extra pasta incentive in his contract because he's definitely not eat, pray, loving out there. Um, let's see what, oh, last on deck, we have, uh, the new Italia kits, uh, Adidas just dropped. We'll do a quick copper drop before we, uh, bid everyone adieu and wish them a, a great rest of their week. Um, we have the Italy marble kit that popped and then they went with the traditional blue. And when we are actually a video medium, this will be a lot more helpful. <laughs> I'm like, allow me to describe to you the knit. Yeah, no. Um, I feel like this has been, uh, it's not exactly the Puma Renaissance print kit that I'm obsessed with, but it certainly is, uh, 10 out of 10 would buy wear both. Um, so I'm a cop on both counts, but I definitely prefer the marble looking one, uh, over the blue, uh, Dre, Grella, do you have any feelings about either copper drop either or both? I mean, yeah. I, go ahead, go ahead. Right. For starters, it's Adidas, right? So like now we've got like, and I don't, I don't want to be disrespectful or disparaging to anything, but when I think football brands, like I think Adidas first and foremost, and there was this great uh, clip years ago at Real Madrid of Xabi Alonso and Cristiano Ronaldo and Adidas and the Nike athlete, like talking about their boots and what was better. And I remember Xabi Alonso telling uh, Cristiano that like, you guys just got into the game 10 years ago and Adidas have always been here, right? So there's something to me really satisfying about um Italy switching to to the Adidas kit. And I just remember like all the vintage looks to national team Adidas kits. Um, I think for me, cop the white marble kit, right? Mm-hmm. The uh, the allusion to uh Carrara Marble, um, where uh Gigi Buffon is is from. Um, that is the away kit. Uh it's you know, whatever the blue is always gonna be the home kit, but that's the one that if I were to get one of the two, it would get it would be that that marble kit, which by the way makes way more sense and I think even looks better in blue for the Azzurri than when Adidas put it out in red for Arsenal and it just looked like players were bleeding all over the field. 
listen, I never understood it to be quite honest with you, like the whole Jersey thing and like putting out New Jersey, I guess yeah, it's a business thing, but like as a player, you just throw on whatever you get. But for me on the match still is the 94 Italy kit. I'll never forget that kit. Number one, it's got a collar. Number yeah. two, it's got, it's got like a little ribbon on the sleeve and then it's got the logo all over it. I mean, there's something special about when you used to put that Jersey on, but again, all the, all the hype about what are they going to wear the white kit? Like maybe twice or two or three times in a major tournament. So, yeah, that's a good point. 94. Who put that kit out? Was that Kappa? No. Um, Do you remember? Cause I don't. So again, not, not, not a visual medium, but I should tell you that in the background of, of Grella's uh, window right now is uh, Bradley Wright Phillips kit uh, and Andrea Pirlo, New York city FC kit, Dieter Drogba's Chelsea kit. Uh, a couple of grellas sprinkled in there. Um, what a David Villa. I'm guessing that's also from the New York City days. So I'm assuming these are all jersey swaps from. Uh, so to, that th- that throwback is a Diodora. I'm, so, I'm getting word. So, so that's yeah. My question to you, Grella, is what was the last kit that you bought? What was the last shirt that you actually went out and paid for? Not for your kids, but for yourself. No, no, never, never bought a shirt. That's Not what right. I'm saying. <laughs> the wrong guy. For, what a uh, flex. <laughs> Never, I never wore a shirt. I'm, I, um, I, I've never really been uh, that guy to buy a shirt. Also, they're very expensive, you know. Yes, <laughs> like, yes, uh, you're absolutely. Like, right. They used to be like sixty dollars. <laughs> now they're like over a hundred dollars. You know. That sweater he has on right now is at least seven hundred bucks. I'm, I'm willing to bet, but the, but the eighty dollars <laughs> kit is way too expensive. Girl, it's like check out my cashmere. <laughs> I could use this for a lot of things, you know. <laughs> it's very versatile. Yes, I agree with you. Don't let him get you down, Grilla. You, you you are sartorialist today. Um, our, producer, our producer just put in the chat twenty dollars from then. Well, on that note, I think we should wrap today. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Grilla Dre. As always. Anytime. Um, you can catch the full gang in the studio on Sunday, noon to 5.30 coverage. Uh, we've got Matteo Benetti and Dre Cordero on the call for Sunday for Juve Atalanta. You don't want to miss that. Um, and again, promo code for P+, if you haven't yet subscribed, is Serie A. So grab that. We will catch you all next week. Same place, same time. Ciao a tutti for now. Uh, until Thursday. Thank you, guys. docuseries on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean and a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.